Tone Bangers, a sound designer's podcast. Here are your hosts, Timothy and Renee. Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Rene Coronado, and Tim is out today. Joining me in his place is Matt Martinson. Matt works in audio department over at Clay Entertainment. His credits include Invisible Ink, Don't Starve, and Mark of the Ninja. You can find him on Twitter at Matt Esque, which is M-A-T-T-E-S-Q-U-E. And he's also part of the Beards, Cats, and Indie Game Audio podcast, which is an awesome podcast. So go check that one out and subscribe to it as well. Hey, Matt, how you doing? Hi. Uh, I'm doing great. Super happy to be here. Cool. So, um... The reason I wanted to have you on is because I'm I'm doing a project right now, which is a little out of my comfort zone. It's an interactive media, yeah. And um and you're kind of the guy that's that's most accessible to me that that really kind of knows what's going on in that space. I'll just jump into kind of some of the uh, you know it's it's still in progress, so I can't talk too much in detail about it. But I want to talk about workflow and interactive media in general because it's the workflow that's that's just kicking my ass on this right now. I'm so used to working in in linear media and in, in a media where you know you have picture and then I can just use whatever tracks I want and make the sounds and then I'm done. And interactive is just it's a different headspace, and I think it's important for people that work in linear media to really start wrapping their heads around interactive because I think more and more. It's not just games anymore, right? Like this no. thing that I'm working on is not a game. Yeah. Yeah. The, with the rise of VR and stuff, we're starting to get all these different projects that sort of all fall under the interactive media category. So there's a lot of neat things going on. You have all these corporations basically that want to make their big kind of sales pitches as these immersive interactive things, right? And I'm just, I'm personally seeing more and more of it. And it's using the same tools, obviously, as game audio. Yeah. It's using that same uh, that same workflow and that same headspace. I mean, the the project I'm working on right now, it's being implemented in Unity, right? Yep. Which is a game engine. It's a total game engine, and so it's it's that whole workflow of I'm having to collaborate with people that are implementing my audio. Yep. Which is a whole different thing for me. Yeah. I'm having to create and iterate assets that aren't necessarily synced to picture, which is making my workstation real ugly and messy and cluttery <laughs> in a way that I'm not used to. And it's like, I'm, I'm not comfortable with it yet. You know what, before we get too deep into like the workflow, give us a little bit about your background and kind of where you come from and where your headspace is as you kind of sure. dive into this kind of stuff. I've been doing game audio for about 12 years now. Um, before that, I came out of doing recording engineering for, for bands and I did a little bit of TV stuff, a little bit of film stuff, a little bit of everything. The only thing I haven't done is live sound. Yeah, don't Which, do live sound. There's no money in live that's, sound. That's scary. <laughs> live sound scares me. So I've got a bit of that music background, but I've been deep into game audio for, for quite a while now. And I, I've worked at the AAAs. I've worked independently as a freelancer. And for about the last four years, I've been been with Clay um, doing all the sound for all their games. And it's really great being at an independent company where they've, they've really given me the freedom to just do what I think is best. So you're kind of a one-man sound department over there? Yes. God, that sounds incredibly intimidating. It is. And I do have help. Uh, I've had contractors at times. I currently have a contractor helping me out full time and I don't have to handle the music. We now have our one of our composers is in-house, which is super awesome to just be able to turn and be like, hey, we've got a trailer. We need new music. And he's sitting right there at the desk next to me. Yeah. So it is. It totally is a sort of intimidating thing, but there's a lot to be said for just going for it and not having to, having anybody sort of question what you're doing. Can you talk a little bit about the scale of your projects? Like, like let's talk about Invisible Ink specifically. Um, yeah. Which is an awesome kind of turn-based uh, strategy game, uh, spy game type thing. Tell me about like the scale of that. Like, like as far as when you have the project come in and you're looking at it, 
like the number of assets that you feel like you're going to create and then beyond that just palette building and everything like that like how how many hours weeks months does it take really to execute a game like that as a one person shop we're working on multiple titles at all times at clay right. so um, my time is kind of split so i think invisible took us about two years wow. to develop and i was 50 percent of my time was on that probably so easily i spent you know nine months just doing sounds for invisible ink and there was a lot of iteration on stuff and the interesting thing is as you're designing the game the game changes so maybe what you thought you were going to design from the get-go isn't where you end up so you have to throw away a lot of stuff wow um, you have to get super comfortable throwing away stuff you know as I, i'd say on our podcast a lot of the times and, and to people in person uh, you got to learn to kill your babies yeah i love that quote that comes from stephen king i talk about that yeah. a lot too specifically when I'm writing, but it's a very, very important concept to take to, to audio as well. And the concept of Kill Your Babies is, yes, this sound is awesome and you love it, but if it doesn't serve the story perfectly, then you have to be comfortable letting it go and moving on to the things that do serve the story. And and kind of when you're working in games, you're working as a collaboration with a team. It's not just you. So you can be like, hey, I've made the most awesome sound ever. I think it's perfect for whatever, this gunshot. And then the rest of the team can be like, yeah, I kind of think it sucks. It doesn't work with the aesthetics of what we're going with. And you have to be like, all right, you know, I can see where you're coming from. Let's make something that works. Yeah, you know, and I get that in linear media also. But what I'm finding is there are more layers of that uh, approval chain (laughs) in the interactive stuff. (laughs) Because implementation has a lot to do with it as well. So much can change when you implement stuff. And I mean, in your situation, I get scared when I'm just throwing assets over the wall to somebody else to implement because because I know how deep you can get and how, how much you can change things on that level. And you, yeah. you don't really know what it is until it's in, in the game or the interactive product. Yeah. And, you know, the scale of this particular thing, it's an installation. And so, you know, the scale is, it's not super deep compared to like a game, right? It's something that you walk into and you interact with it for a while and you walk out of. So it's not some 50 hour gameplay kind of thing. Yeah. Which is part of the big part with, with games that are 20, 30, 40 hour experiences is you have to make sure you've got the variety of everything to be able to account for. I don't want you to hear the same footstep twice kind of thing or know that you've heard same footstep twice. Right. And the other thing that I'm finding with implementation is that it's really forcing me to separate my asset creation from my mix, right? Yeah. Because when I'm working in linear media, I'm working basically within the context of the mix that I'm creating. So I know my ambiences are kind of sitting here and I know I can put my footsteps here and I can I know I can do all of this in real time and it's kind of happening. Whereas with implementation, I kind of have to try and build elements and then print them and put them up against one another and hope that's okay and then tweak it. And so it's like a whole separate like exterior step that I'm dealing with. Yeah. With regards to balancing and levels. And then obviously panning is just wild ass to me. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm doing my best to tie my programmer's hands as much as possible on panning. Yeah. I was, I was talking to somebody uh, just the other night and they were asking about doing surround sound creation. I was like, well, I never make anything in surround. It's always at most stereo, the majority of the time, mono sources because the game engine moves it around in the in the space for me. Yeah. In my implementation right now, anyway, I actually am delivering surround stuff. Yep. But it's because they're mostly like big transition kind of things where it's not tracking anything specifically on the screen. Right. And so because it's like all the screens are lighting up or going away or everything's swishing or whatever, then I feel like I'm, I'm comfortable enough with, like I don't have to... Um, 
rely on the game engine to do that panning. I can treat that as a linear kind of event. Yeah, totally. And do all of that. I feel like we're already like in the middle of this conversation and we should back up to the beginning. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's talk about building assets. Let's talk about asset sure. creation for interactive media. Halfway through this project and I'm already totally changing my workflow. And I think by the time I get to the end of it, I'll have changed it again. Yeah. What I started doing, and you, you can laugh at me for this, I created an asset list kind of as a starting point, right? So I got, a, I got basically a flow chart of everything that is supposed to happen. I got no, yep. you know, I've got basically a storyboard, right? Yeah. Of everything that's supposed to happen as you, as the user walks through this experience. And then from that, I had to dream up an asset list of all the sounds that I think that this storyboard is telling me that I'm going to need. Mm-hmm. And they sign off on the broad kind of concepts of what we're all thinking. And then what happens is I start getting screen grabs in of actual animations and interactions on the screens, right? Yeah. So now I've got screen grabs in. I don't know if this is how you work at all, but I got screen grabs in. And so I'm like, cool, I have these 12 interactions that are happening in this one clip that they gave me. I'm going to start just designing those. I don't have to design an order. I can design with what I see in front of me. So I design those out. And what happens is I end up with just stacks of tracks um, <laughs> on top of one another in this yep. thing. Because I just treated it like I would. Because my, my headspace initially was I'll just design it out like I normally would. And then I'll take the elements later and break them out and print them out and, and give them the individual elements afterwards. Well, it ended up being just messy as hell to do it that way because now I've got plugins on stuff and all of a sudden I'm dropping effects on tracks that have plugins on them and they're doing unintended things which is not always a good thing and I'm just kind of pulling my hair out going this is hard <laughs> <laughs> yes yes it is so I changed my so and I, and I jumped on uh, and to totally derail again Matt's got a, a game audio slack channel up that he graciously allowed me into and uh, so I jump on this Slack channel and start talking to you guys and saying how hard it is. And, um, and I start getting some good feedback. And so I, basically what I'll do now is I'll take my screen grab. I will design one sound against picture. Yep. I'll move all of that audio out past my picture, print it, and then I'll take the printed one and put it back and sync it back up against picture. Yeah. And now I've got a much kind of tighter space over here, like right under in sync. And the other advantage I found from that is that I can deliver back a CSV file of all the fi- of all the files as they're playing back, so that my implementer can see exactly which file right. played off at which second of the reference video. So there's no question marks there. So it's kind of like you've got your creation tracks and then temp tracks for the sounds you've already created. Right. Yeah. I've basically got you know two or three kind of playback tracks. Yeah. That I'm just kind of syncing print tracks up to, and then yeah, I've got I've got a set of creation tracks that can have plugins or not. Sometimes I'm just layering or whatever. Yeah. Or sometimes I am audio suiting stuff. Yes. But it's a lot cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, like, how bad that is, or how dramatically it's, different that is from you. <laughs> it's it's dramatically different from why I work, but I'm I'm the weirdo. Like, I don't think that my workflow works best for everybody, but I'm sure there's parts of my workflow that people can take and put into theirs and possibly get better. I'm lucky enough to be in-house, so I rarely deal with with movies. I walk over to an animator's desk and go, hey, show me like all the, the, the stuff that's going to go with this creature. Show me the attack and the death and the you know whatever they do. And I write down timings from all of it, how long stuff is, if there's anything key at certain frames that I want to hit sounds on. And I just mm-hmm. literally write it down. And then I go create stuff without picture. 
And sometimes I'll, I'll go back and, and check again. And if there is stuff that needs to be hit on very specific frames, I'll a lot of times break that out so that it will be its own sound effect and end up being its own event in implementation. So that if the timing of animations change, we're just moving events around. We're not recreating whole sounds. So if there's something that's like an animation that's five seconds long, it might be three different events by the time it gets to the implementation stage. Yeah, that's I've, I've definitely been running into that as well on certain things where it's like there are things that will kind of draw out onto a screen and you're sitting there going, well, I can I can kind of design this whole thing. And the thing that I'm still kind of wrapping my head around is is the whole interactive thing, right? It's yeah. like, well, this is not locked in place here. I mean, a user could do this or they could do or I could have two people here and they could both do something else. Yeah. And so on the majority of the time, you want a lot of variation on anything you're doing, too. So even if, you know, you have an attack an attack swing of, of a creature, you're going to want to make five or six variations on that. So even if you are doing like two picture locked, you kind of got to move stuff over and create it all over again. Right. So what you're doing is certainly on the right track. And the big, big kind of scary thing that I do that freaks some people out is I audio suite everything. <laughs> right. I very rarely put a plugin on a track. And that way my sessions, they don't have that, strange overlapping of, of plugins where like, oh, I got I to gotta bypass this plugin for this section, but then bring it back for this one. So I like, I, I run hard and commit to everything. So I found myself doing that a little bit more as I've kind of progressed. Mm -hmm. The things that I'm audio suiting are simple things that I already know what they're going to sound like. Right. You know, like a high pass. Yeah. You know, I do, you know, really insanely deep EQ stuff to my different layers. So I just print that because I know that I want to really mess this thing up to get what I want out of it or distortions. I'll print my, all my distortions. But I mean, I'll, I'll print everything. I'll print my delays, reverbs, everything that goes into a layer of something. Yeah. And see, I guess with me, to some degree, when I'm stacking plugins, right? Yeah. So in other words, I've got a chain up where I've got an EQ going, I've got some sort of chorus happening, I've got a distortion, and then I've got a delay happening after that, and then I've got like a limiter on top of that. Mm -hmm. To some degree, I, I don't know, I'm still used to tweaking everything as it interacts with one another, and I have a hard time stepping through that Yeah. as I'm audio suiting it. With that said, there are certain things that I immediately audio suite and I never bother setting up a plugin on, uh, yeah. specifically things like reverses, high passes, pitch and time, any kind of pitch shifting I do. Yeah. Every so often I will just slam something to death and print it with an audio suite with like H comp. Yeah. Half the stuff in my session is, you know, hard printed with decapitator on all of it. So, <laughs> um, and the thing is a lot of people ask me like, well, what happens when it comes time for revisions? Like, how do you, right. how do you back up a step? And in my experience, the work that I've done so far, when it comes time to revisions, it's generally the sound is just plain wrong. And I'm not like, oh, I need to go tweak a tiny bit of EQ that I did in one layer or something. It's just like the sound is wrong and needs to be fully redesigned. So I'm going back and throwing away half or more of my layers anyways, because it's just, it just doesn't work. So getting like tweaky revisions, I just haven't found is a very big thing. Yeah, yeah. The client's never going to come back and say, you know what? There's just too much chorus. Maybe back the chorus off a little bit. You know, they just never do that. Yeah. Yeah, it's different than like when I mix music. I totally, lots of plugins on tracks, very traditional kind of setup. And that's where you get those little tweaky things like, yeah, there's there's too much chorus on that, that piano. 
stuff like that. But when I'm creating individual assets to go into a game, it's it's usually like this is wrong on so many levels that you need to go back. <laughs> And I mean, I've done the whole thing. I created the best sound in the world, and this is the perfect thing, and I put it into the game and then fired up the game. And no, no, this is wrong. This is just not the thing. <laughs> you know, what's the thing that's still kind of blowing my mind a little bit is that you don't work with reference picture at all, that you just write down the timings. And I guess is that's because the timings are always subject to change, right? The animators could... Totally. There is definitely that. Like, things can change, so, and that's why I break stuff up into kind of as many small events as I can. Yeah. So that generally the timing of that stays consistent, like what you've created usually works for that. It's that when does it start moves around. So the more you can break things up, the less you have to go back and redesign whole things. And it's just like, oh, we just move the when we trigger this event around. Right. Yeah, so. that makes total sense. Um, how do you communicate things like pitch randomization to your implementer? Well, I do all my own implementation, which is... Okay. That's what I was saying. It gets, I get scared when you're throwing assets over to somebody else yeah, to do that. Yeah, because I'm, I'm having to kind of dream it up a little bit and then kind of document it and then pray. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> I would think that when somebody else is doing the implementation, and especially if they're not an audio for person, if they're not like a technical audio artist, if they're just a programmer or designer, um, you need a lot of documentation of what, how to implement something. So it would be like, I'd write down like the pitch shifting, you know, the randomization of pitch should be like one or two semitones or yeah. three semitones or just whatever the middleware or game engine you're using, whatever terminology it uses, figure that out and that's what you tell them. So they don't even have to think. They're just like, oh, okay, I, you know, I, I pull up the pitch randomization box and put a two in it. <laughs> right. Well, and it, and it makes a huge difference because if you have something that's got a tonal element to it and you swing it too wide, it'll sound too crazy. You know, you, oh, yeah. And there's lots of instances where you don't want any pitch randomization. Because, absolutely. you know, it's a very informational sound. So, like, you want that click to always be the same click. You don't want it straying all over the place. Yeah, I find that with a lot of uh, user interface type sounds. Like, I tend to want them yeah. to be pretty static. Yeah, you want a click to be a click. You want a, you know, a, a low health pop-up to be the same thing, not people guessing what that sound was that I heard and then die. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, I'll say this also. So I had a, um, so I had this side conversation with Joel Walsh and Joel is another great uh, designer. I think he's done lots and lots of uh, mobile game space uh, stuff. Yeah. And he saw this conversation that we were having on the Slack channel and he had a side conversation with me about it. And, and basically he said what he does is he'll go another step in the middle of it mm -hmm. where he takes the assets, creates the assets, and then he'll chuck them in a sampler and then he'll play them back in a sampler against picture cool the main advantages he saw from that was a you can do like version iteration real quickly yeah right because you can just swap the sample and say hey here's what i did for with version a and here's version b so you can yeah. look at the two different things because you're just firing off midi and the other thing is that samplers do a really nice job of handling things that are either mono or stereo or whatever they can take you know they can take different multi-channel kind of situations and yeah. just kind of streamline how that all happens. Because I'm definitely finding myself with like mono playback tracks where I'm panning them manually, you know, kind of against where I think they would go. And then I've got the stereo and the surround stuff that's just kind of laid in there. So I've got multiple playback tracks that it's just more stuff to communicate back. And so I think the sampler idea is a good yeah. idea. It's it's another step that's even that much further out of my own headspace. Right. <laughs> so I, I haven't done it yet, but like in con in theory, it seems like a good idea to me. 
Yeah, there, I think there's a lot of people doing some really cool stuff with samplers and like battery. Like I've seen people do the same sort of thing with battery as well. That's really cool. That I also have not fully wrapped my head around. And I think it's partially too. I I don't have to deliver like movies to be checked by people because I'm in house. We just put it into the game and check it there. Right. But when you're working externally, you kind of need to show people like you know there's a needs to be an approval process and sometimes you're not going to get it in the game quick enough you need to have a video to show somebody of like here's what we've done what do you think and it still be some sort of interactive thing so and the way that i'm handling that with mine is we're just doing screen grabs of interaction of the current animations as they are yeah and so that serves not only just to give me timing but it also serves as something that i end up you know, doing a mix to basically and handing back to them that they can show to their client and the client can say yes and no on a whole bunch of stuff all at once. Yeah, there's certainly, there's its own workflow of previews for all of the people involved in the decision-making process. Yeah, it's funny how little of the time spent is actually making the sounds. Yeah. It's so much just documentation and crazy workflow things and it's a... It's opening my eyes in a way that I didn't have them open before because I thought I knew what the hell I was doing. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I would say one of the biggest non-DAW friends of game audio people is Excel. Yeah, absolutely. You you talk to any game audio person and if you're talking about anything, half the time it's like, oh yeah, I'll just make a spreadsheet about that. Like for anything. Exactly. Well, and even Google Docs is even a step above that because it's so collaborative. Like you can put a Google Doc up and everyone can jump on that thing yeah. and start manipulating it and commenting and everything else. I'm, I definitely oh, totally. do that. When I talk Excel, I just sort of mean spreadsheets in general, yeah. really. We were on the Slack channel a while ago talking about like, oh, what's everybody's screen names for the various everything? You know, what game platforms are you on? And somebody was like, I just made a spreadsheet in Google Drive about it so you can add it there. You just jump to that immediately. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what I did with um, with my asset list, too. I mean, I built my asset list locally, and then once I was happy with it, then I just chucked it up to Google Docs and, and shared it. And immediately, all these people that I didn't know were on the project were in there, you know, jacking with it. So, <laughs> <laughs> cool. Now I know. <laughs> at least at least they're they're messing with that and not your actual sounds. Exactly. That's <laughs> why so I stay way over here. Um, that's actually a good little uh, segue point to some other stuff that I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Which is the kind of little side tools that you use to do your job, like not the main DAW and not any main middleware, but all of the other software and peripherals that get used to make, uh, you know, just sound design in general. Google Docs is a big deal for me. I mean, I use I use it for yep. all kinds of stuff. I just use it to track ideas half the time. Um, yeah, we use it all the time at Clay. Like, pretty much I have a sound list for every game we're working on, and that's shared specifically with that team that's working on stuff. So I try and involve the designers as much as I can to helping me document what's needed. Because I'm on so many projects, I don't really know what's going on a lot of the time. So being able them to be like, hey, we implemented this thing. It totally needs a sound. I put it on the list. And so you have separate to-do lists per project. Is that how that works within Google Docs? Yeah, pretty much. That's cool. That's smart. And then it's shared with, you know, the relevant people. And a lot of times, uh, you know, designers will go, hey, we made this thing. We know it needs sound. We put it on the list. And I'm like, okay, that's a like notice basically for me to go look at it and decide what sounds actually are needed in that spot. It definitely needs something, but they don't know exactly what it may be. So then it gets some some sound eyes on it. Right. And evaluate it. 
Yeah, that's cool. I guess along those lines also is Slack, which you introduced me to. The Game Audio Slack channel was my first interaction with Slack as a platform at all. Slack's basically a chat room yeah. with cool kind of search and notification utility built into it that makes it a little better than just a straight chat room. It's become our main sort of chat program at Clay, and we have a, a channel for every game. And then there's peripheral channels, too, for various different things, and you can have private groups when you're on a paid account and stuff. So basically, it means... Every game has a Slack channel and you belong to whichever channels you need to be aware of. So if you're working on one game, you only pay attention to that one. If you're on a couple of games, you know, you pay attention to several. And then you're not inundated with all this stuff from something you really don't care about. Yeah. So I'm sitting here on the Game Audio Slack channel and I'm thinking, man... I keep getting bombarded with emails from this client and we're doing conference calls every other day. And it's just like, yeah. we need just to be just slacking this thing to death. And so I emailed them and I said, hey guys, have you heard of Slack? Have you done this? And they're like, oh yeah, we got a Slack channel up. You want to be on it? And I was like, come on, <laughs> let's do this. <laughs> yeah, it's a great tool. I find it's not great for things that need to be found often. Like if you're like, hey, here's a link to the Google document about the game. Like that's... It's not good to put it there, but it's really great for like, hey, I've got this design problem. What does everybody think about this? How should we handle this? Yeah, like exactly. Firing off those conversations about things. So stuff like, hey, what do you think of the mix right now? You know, then you can get everybody involved in just chatting about it instead of, yeah, 10 million emails. Yeah, because man, I was getting just bombarded. I really work hard to keep my emails to a minimum and Slack has really helped that out a lot. That's awesome. I thought it was great. I'm, I'm sitting here talking to the guys around the studio going, you know, we might just want to think about it. But at the same time, we th here's the downside to Slack for me. And it's a little bit like Twitter and a little bit like Reddit. And that's a massive time suck if I allow my face to go look at it. Oh, yeah, um, totally. I have to like, but at the same time, it's like, it's also work, right? And yep. so I'm sitting here like working on stuff and I want to ask somebody something, but I know the moment I ask somebody something, here's 30 minutes of me chatting with that guy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I really liked how the the Game Audio Slack channel has evolved into being, it's, it's this total hangout for audio people and there's a lot of, you know, kind of just chatting about whatever and putting up funny gifts and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but then as soon as somebody asks a question... Everyone jumps in and is like, oh, this is what I think about that and giving like really great information about, you know. Yeah, I came to the channel with my workflow like woes and all of a sudden like you and everyone else started saying, oh, you can try to do this. And it was uh, it was very cool. Like it was one of those things that I felt like I had a secret like unlock code of to how to, <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, I've got all these people that I can just ping and it's better than Twitter because they're right there. On yeah, that's why I started it is I was having these conversations on Twitter that were just too long for Twitter. You know, you've got five people's screen names involved and you're trying to tell what you think the best VO mic is in, you know, at this point, like 50 characters. Yeah. So I wanted somewhere just where we could have bigger conversations that were, were occurring on Twitter. Um, and it's evolved from there. And I've just sort of let the community take it where it wants to go. Uh, so someone listening to this that kind of wants to get in on that, like, how do they approach that? They need to be invited by email. So the best thing is to, on Twitter, DM me an email and I'll, I'll add you. The only thing I'm checking for is, do you actually work in game audio? And if I can see the vaguest of something that you are, then I'll add you. Cool. Um, other tools that I've been using lately, I just upgraded from Quick Keys over to Keyboard Maestro. Yep. And I love it. Oh my God. <laughs> it's the coolest thing ever. When I'm working in Pro Tools specifically, like Pro Tools has certain functions that it does not have keystrokes for, right? Yeah. Anytime you're working on a computer, you shouldn't ever really repeat yourself, right? 
Yeah. You shouldn't ever, you know, do this same thing over and over and over again. And so you need some sort of a keyboard automator to handle those tasks. So it's so keyboard maestro is just a basic, you know, scripting editor. Yeah. So I use it for things like launching audio suite plugins. So I've got, mm-hmm. you know, nine audio suite plugins on my keypad yeah. that I just, I hold control and my, my control two is always reverse. Yeah. And it just launches the audio suite plugin for that. So my screen isn't all cluttered up with, you know, 50,000 audio suite plugins, but at the same time, I can go to the exact one I want at any yeah. given moment. So for stuff like that, it's really great. Also for things like renaming and exporting files, mm-hmm. there's certain projects that we have kind of tight VO edits on but they, uh, the deliverable is MP3. And when you take a tight edit out of Pro Tools and you deliver an MP3, occasionally it kind of nicks the end of it off. Yeah. Even if your edit is correct inside of Pro Tools. Yeah. So I've got a, a workflow, I guess they call it a macro inside of Keyboard Maestro mm-hmm. that just adds three frames to all of my prints. At oh, the cool. End. So boom, here's three frames. Now I know all of those are going to export as MP3 correctly. Yeah. And off they go. So anything that's repetitive like that, Keyboard Maestro. The thing I like about it that's better than Quick Keys because yes. I've been using Quick Keys forever is uh, the backend scripting interface is a little better. Cool. And uh, it has an ability for the user or for the person that's uh, defining the scripts to uh, create and use variables, right? So if I want to do something that takes a bunch of stems and relabels them in some sort of uniform way, I can hit the macro and they can have it pop up a dialogue and say, hey, what do you want to label these things? I type in the label, I hit go, and then it relabels all the stems and exports them. Nice. So, you know, anytime I find myself doing any kind of repetitive task, I just create a macro for it and it's off. And it's just, you know, I've been using stuff like that. Like when I'm cutting VO, I mean, I use macros for cutting VO and I use macros for cutting ADR and, and doing a bunch of kind of repetitive muting and unmuting and, and highlighting and unhighlighting and renaming tracks. And so I, I very rarely have anything where I'm not just firing off a keystroke. And if I'm at a computer where I don't have my keystrokes installed, I'm kind of lost. <laughs> I've, I've heard that from numerous people who are, who are deep into quick keys or keyboard maestro. They're just like, if I don't have it, I can't work. It becomes part of your muscle memory. Yeah. Just like the regular keystrokes, like it's just one of your keystrokes that yeah. that it's built into the software. It's just, that's the one, that's the set of keystrokes that you have to take with you wherever the hell you go. Totally. Like I have a weird claw hand for when I'm VO editing of like getting all the keys under one hand that I'm like, I know that I, you know, my different zoom levels and my tabs, tabs to regions and play stop are all this weird claw on my left hand. Do you use a keyboard uh, automator at all? I don't, and I feel a bit of a heathen for not having one. So I'm, oh, yeah, I'm in, the, in the process of evaluating, like, I know people that use Keyboard Master, I know people who use Quick Keys, and I'm kind of searching out which, which way should I go, which one's the best. Well, Quick Keys is not supported anymore. Like, Quick Keys had well, one, one programmer that, like, quit years ago. And so the reason I had to switch from Quick Keys to Keyboard Maestro is because we just upgraded our computers to Yosemite, and yeah, Quick yep. Keys just does not fly so anymore. It was, it was done. So there you go. It's just it was done. So yeah, I know a couple other people that use uh, Keyboard Maestro, so that's definitely looking like a front runner. I, I'm really happy um, with because I definitely want to get more into that. Well, you know, especially if you have you know your set of Audio Suite plugins that you that you want to just fire off, or even if they're all up on your screen, if you just want to pull the correct one yep. to the front of the screen. You can do that kind of stuff. Yeah. I always have, my second screen is basically full of all of the audio suite plugins I'm using. Yeah. Kind of in a session. Um, And one of the reasons I like to keep them open is I like, sometimes I'll get into settings that I then want to put on a bunch of different stuff. Right. So keeping them open can be important to to keep that there. 
Yeah. And honestly, I don't know how you manage, you know, thousands of files without some sort of file naming automation. I mean, I'm talking about within your session. I don't, do you use Pro yeah. Tools? What do you use? What's your DOW? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Pro Tools guy. Okay. Uh, I might be switching. We'll see about that. Okay. Usual uh, avidness. Yes, I understand. Um, <laughs> um, and, it's, and it's interesting in that, in that kind of DAW area, like Nuendo now has integration with Wise, one of the big um, middlewares. Yeah, it's a big deal. So I kind of see Steinberg as doing stuff actually for the game audio community. Um, and I think they're the only DAW maker that really is. So I kind of want to support the people that are supporting me. I saw something about Reaper where Reaper's got uh, an interesting kind of text-based notation set up inside of it also that's uh, apparently very useful. Oh, the scripting language in Reaper 2 is ridiculous. It uses Lua, which is the same scripting language we use for our games. Yeah. So I think if you dig in, you can do some really powerful stuff with Reaper these days. It takes a lot of digging in. I've, I've put it my does. hands on Reaper a few times, and it makes me slower right now, but it's because I haven't spent you know weeks on it. Yeah. The kind of thing that's holding me back is there's no audio suite-like processing. Yeah, Reaper. that's kind of a big so, deal. I'm all for learning a new program, but I'm not down for learning a new program and a new workflow. So how do you deal with naming within your session? I mostly name on export um, and I'll use name mangler after the fact to deal with stuff. Um, within the session, I've just got like lots of markers for what I'm creating because I'll do like a session will be for ambiences and then another session will be for combat and another session for movement. So I'm very split up in kind of what the stuff I'm creating at the time is because uh-huh. those things, if you know, I'm doing ambiences, ambiences will use a lot of the same source stuff. So then I can keep all import all the source I'm interested in for those ambiences and not have them cluttered in with, you know, all the footsteps that I want to create. Right. So that's, that's a way I sort of keep, things organized that way is is by sort of what it is. So in other words, you'll have, like, say you're doing, you know, a, a stack of footsteps. And so you'll you'll create and render the footsteps and spit them out with some with some random name. And then you'll use, what, what which one are you using for rename? Um, name Angler. So you use Name Angler to just kind of sequentially name what you spit out. Is that how that works? Yeah. See, I, the reason that wouldn't work for me is because I use so much my control F, you know, to yeah. find... Uh, sounds. People always complain about Pro Tools not having bins, but to me, I, I feel like if if the thing is searchable, you're in good enough shape. But that does require yeah. you to name the things on the front end. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a that's a better way, certainly. From you know, <laughs> I basically just I just use markers, and then you're like searching through the markers list. Sometimes, like I have some really gross lists of markers that you know <laughs> that you're just it's it's a lot of figuring out when you made something. You have to know the project intimately enough to go, okay, I, I made the, the carpet footsteps, you know, about halfway through the project. So it should be about halfway through this session. Do you ever try region groups instead of markers? Uh, no, I haven't. And that's probably a great idea. Yeah, because you can you can search for region groups too. So you can just control F and find it and then boom, there it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's so you can great... just put a, a dummy region group up and just name it whatever whatever you would with a marker. You're not character limited like you would be with the markers. Cool. That's a great tip. As I'm looking at the Slack channel here, Jay Fernandez says, hey, do you master level your sound effects when you make each one, or do you do a big master level pass afterwards? I master as I bounce out or print. Yeah, I do the same. In games, you want everything to be the same level. Um, There's a few things that you might print at a lower level just because you know it's never going to be full volume, like an ambience. I'll I'll print an ambience at a lower level just because I know that I'm never going to turn that up to full 
But everything else, I mix all of it in the game engine. So I want as high fidelity and high as dynamic range as I can get out of it. So I print it at a, you know, minus three for everything. So what do you do with your speaker levels? Are your speaker levels always moving around or do you leave those set when you're creating? Yet again, I'm totally weird. I sit at a desk and work on headphones for the most of the time. Ah. Um, so I'm out with the team, um, which is an interesting thing. And it's very, it's only something you would want to do in game audio where the communication with the team is kind of more important than working on a set of speakers a lot of the time. Um, the amount of stuff that I overhear and realize I need to be involved in a conversation and being seen and not forgotten about by being hidden away in a, in a room right. is a bigger benefit. So yeah, so I work off of headphones a lot of times. And when I do need to do stuff that I, I think is critical to be listened to in the air, I'll work at home in my home studio. Interesting. I haven't gotten into the um, like calibrated speaker levels, which I do think are great, but I come from a music background. Yeah, which is the opposite of and that. And music were always turning up and down and like, what does it sound like when it's low? What does it sound like when it's high? So I still have a little bit of that in my head. Yeah. I'm, I'm very, very locked into the calibrated playback situation. Yeah. I will see. I mean, I, I haven't delivered a, a project of this scope yet, right? With my workflow the way that it is. Because right now my stuff is not slammed up hot at all. I mean, my speakers yeah. are at my regular broadcast calibrated level. They're locked off. And I'm creating assets that are basically pre-mixed, right? The idea is, you know, you should be able to chuck them in the engine as, you know, as a programmer, chuck them in there, tell them to play when they're supposed to play, and it should sound good. Yeah. Which is a different headspace than when you're mixing it in the engine, for sure. Totally. And the, one of the problems I find with that is the majority of game engines can't go louder. Interesting. Okay. I did not know that. There's no up. So a lot of times, if something needs to go up, you need to remaster that sound. Right. Down is, everything does down, but a lot of stuff, it just, it, it all starts at zero and there's nothing above that. Interesting. I wonder if Unity is that way. I need to figure that out. I think Unity is one of the ones that can't go louder. Well then, I'm going to have to check with the implementation <laughs> and see how that goes. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's the thing, right? Because this is an installation, right? I'm not having to compete with whatever's around it. Yeah. Right. Whereas, you know, in a traditional, like, you know, distributed game, you're competing with the other games that are around it or whatever, you know, was just on TV or whatever was just, you know, playing on music or whatever. In my situation, it's a little bit more like a theatrical environment in that when you walk into a theater, that's a calibrated playback environment. Yeah. So the assets that I'm delivering to them, as long as they turn the speakers up loud enough to where everybody's happy, yeah. the balances should be static and good. So I, I may not run into an issue there. They just may have to turn their speakers up. Yeah, I've just encountered too many too many people going, hey, can this be a little louder? Even when I'm have mi when I'm mixing, even when I'm mixing in game engine, you know, I set the mix and somebody else always is like, hey, I, I really want to hear this louder. Do you ever tell them to turn the speakers up? Sometimes, but a lot of times it is like, well, it's it's that's getting lost in stuff. I think it's right for... You oh, know, it's context, yeah. right? It's a balance. You know, there's always, everybody has a, an opinion about the mix. That's true. And they're listening in the worst environments. Man, I get so many mixes evaluated over the phone or on <laughs> iPhones. <laughs> I, I find the, the worst thing for evaluations in game audio is people who just listen to the assets or it's not approved until it's in the game. Yeah. Is my view. If you haven't implemented it in the game and are checking it in the game engine doesn't count. Yep. Um, other kind of side tools, you were telling me about Sample Manager. What's that? So Sample Manager is from Audiophile Engineering, and it's a, a batch processor. 
And I found it when I first went freelance and I was looking for cheaper tools than getting, you know, whatever the big expensive two track that you're just going to use for batching everything was. So it's a pretty powerful batch exporter that has so far done everything that I need it to do. So what kind of, uh, what kind of stuff will you use it for? A lot of my conversions to when I'm doing soundtracks, when I need to convert to MP3s and convert to FLAC and everything, I run everything like that. Gotcha. Through it. Or, you know, you can do, do fades and you can, you can actually process stuff. So when I'm doing speech processing, I'll do all my VO edits and, and lay out all my VO and Pro Tools and figure out how I want to master these sounds. And then because I'm dealing with potentially thousands of speech files, I'll run them through Sample Manager and use that to batch all of that processing. Yeah, that's cool. RX4 is starting to build that kind of stuff into it as well. Yeah. So yeah, previously that there was there was less tools for that. So it was it was it was it's still a great one. Man, um, back in the day, it was Wave Convert. Yep. Wave Convert, you could just put a bunch of plugins on stuff and spit it out to any format you wanted. That thing was, man, I haven't seen it in probably 10 years. It was right at the beginning of Waves, but that was that was the bomb back then. And then there was a big hole for five or 10 years before, <laughs> before these other utilities started coming out. You know, one other thing I find that I, that I have to do sometimes, especially with, with audio that's exported out of Pro Tools, is I have to strip the wave header off. Right. Because Pro Tools puts a whole bunch of broadcast-style metadata into those wave headers. And if the playback engine is not prepared for that, sometimes it really freaks out. Right. I used Barber Patch for that. Yeah, that that used to be the go-to one that I went to. And when I originally went freelance, Barber Patch was still pretty expensive. It is still expensive. And I started looking around for other batching programs and I found Sample Manager and it was like 100 bucks or something or less. So Nice. It was like, all right, this is this fits my freelancer budget. <laughs> <laughs> and it kind of has always done everything that I needed to do in that that regard. Yeah, it's, it's a great tool. I recommend it all the time to people who are looking for for something to do batching out of stuff. Awesome. Um, which in game audio you do you do a lot of once you're dealing with thousands of files of something. Yeah, no doubt. I can't even get into version control yet because I can't wrap my head around it. Oh, it's so good. I can't live without version control. It's a scary thought not having version control. Yeah, I'm having to do it manually right now, and it's uh, it's tough. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, thankfully, uh, we've got, you know, programmers in the IT department and everything, so I don't have to set any of that up. That would probably scare the pants off me. <laughs> so I just have to be like, where's where's the SVN depot for this project? And just type it in, and I'm good. But it's so nice working with version control. And a lot of the middlewares integrate version control into them now. So, you know, if you're using FMON-wise, they'll tie right into it, so you don't even have to go externally to submit things, so... It's great. And it's great knowing that there's, you know, if you make some changes and those changes are wrong, you can just roll it back and there it is. Yeah, that's cool. Cool, Matt. Well, hey, man, I really appreciate you coming on, man, because my head was just getting twisted into knots trying to figure out how to do this project. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. And, you know, you have a beautiful podcast, too, by the way. Um, Well, thank you very much. The, uh, the last couple of episodes in particular, I was just totally locked into. You guys were really talking about the right stuff. I'll say it this way. Your heads are in the right places, in my opinion. Sweet. Well, th- that's high praise, I would say, because <laughs> you guys, I, I, it's a real honor to be on Tonebenders. Like, I'm blown away that I get to be a guest on this. So it's really awesome. That's funny because it's just like, I don't know, these podcasts are just things that we do. Like, we just do them because we want to do them and we have yeah. no real credentials other than the ones that we say we have. But, <laughs> you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, ours came about because we went to a little one-day audio conference in Seattle, and you know, it's a, from Vancouver. It's about a two and a half, three-hour drive, and me and Gorgeous had a really great time talking together. And we were like, maybe other people would like to hear us talk about stuff. We should we should get together and talk more often, and that's where the podcast came from. So. Well, and you know, even though I don't work in interactive a lot, I do find I gain a lot from what you guys are talking about because you're still talking about working with actors and you're still talking about sound design and you're still talking about that kind of stuff that's still very applicable to me. And then when I when I do step into these situations where I'm having to learn new stuff on the fly at kind of a high level, I'm very grateful that I've at least spent some time listening to people that know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for thinking I know what I'm doing. It's all good. You've got me fooled. <laughs> The tools that are out there for people who are, who need to learn stuff now are just phenomenal with the podcasts and Twitter and, you know, all these these different areas where you can, if you're a solo person working as a freelancer at home, you can reach out onto the internet and get so much great advice from people. It's, I wish all of this was around when I started out doing yeah, no stuff. Kidding. And the tools too. I mean, you can just download just stacks of free or cheap tools and just get started working. Yeah, it's so awesome. When I started, it was two-inch tape on an Amec Mozart console, you know? It was... I started out doing music analog, and I can't imagine have ever doing sound design that way. I know. It really, like, I, I went and saw, just to completely derail again, that I saw a documentary on how they did the first Predator sound, and it was just amazing. They were going out there with, you know, two-inch tape into the jungle and recording crap. <sighs> it's Crazy. just the coolest thing ever. <laughs> we, we've got it easy these days we do it's great we get to work with great tools and yeah we get to work on fun stuff so there we go awesome well hey man thanks for jumping on i'll put links to beards cats and indie game audio up on our site as well and um everybody needs to go check them out because they're awesome Thanks to everybody who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to Matt for jumping on with us today. Thanks to Stacey Dupass for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. You can follow the show at The Tonebenders and go to ToneBendersPodcast.com to leave a comment. Also check us out on Facebook.com slash ToneBendersPodcast. Sweet. Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. Support the show, go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tonebenders on Twitter or find Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonebenderspodcast.com. <laughs> <laughs>